Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say that we're talking to Dan Sidorik about his new book, Condensed Capitalism, Campbell Soup and the Pursuit of Cheap Production in the 20th Century. One time in college I had a summer job in an aircraft factory, and in that aircraft factory... I counted screws. I kid you not, that was my job. I counted screws. They had divided up production in every imaginable way so that every job had a discrete task, and and mine was counting screws. I have to tell you, it was not a very interesting job. And one of the things that it taught me is that I did not want to pursue a career as a screw counter. No knock on anybody who actually still counts screws. I think it's important to realize, though, that there are a lot of people that do this sort of work in factories where... A lot of what is called de-skilling is going on, and Dan Sidorik has told the story of one industry in which de-skilling took place in a kind of radical way. You've probably made soup. Well, Campbell Soup designed a way to create millions, probably billions of gallons of soup by now through the factory production of soup. And it's an interesting story. It's one of innovation. It's one of the growth and proper application of capital. It's one of satisfying people's needs for cheap and expensive and nutritious food, but it's also the story of the struggle between management and labor. And a little bit later, it's the story of a corporation that faced intense competition from overseas and some price pressure at home and decided eventually to move out of its home. And that home in Campbell Soup's case was Camden, New Jersey. They took their production facilities out of Camden in the 1980s. We should thank Dan for telling the entire story from the very beginning of Campbell Soup, uh, well over 100 years ago to the moment at which they left Camden and even up through today. So in any event, I enjoyed talking to Dan today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Dan. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm very well. And you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. I just had a big breakfast, actually. Today we're talking with Dan Sidorik about his new book, Condensed Capitalism, Campbell Soup, and the Pursuit of Cheap Production in the 20th century. This is an excellent book. It's kind of a history of uh, capitalism from the inside out. That's the way I think about it. At least it kind of takes you into the uh, Campbell Soup factory in uh, in southern New Jersey, in Camden, New Jersey. I bet you didn't know that Campbell Soup used to be made there. Uh, and he explains over this uh, quite a long period, over 100 years, uh, exactly uh, how it was that the people that owned and operated Campbell Soup and the people that ran the factory uh, interacted and what they produced uh, and how this weaves in and out of the more general story of the development of, uh, as he well puts it, cheap production. Things are astoundingly cheap. Cheap production in the United States. Um, and it's a, it's really a, a fascinating read. And if you're interested in, in economics or economic history or social history or labor history, this is a, a terrific book. And of course, it's particularly relevant now that we have labor issues on the front burner uh, practically daily in the news, and I'm thinking of the uh, Wisconsin, but not only the Wisconsin here in Iowa, too. We have issues uh, that involve unions, so Dan's book is uh, very relevant at this particular moment. So, Dan, thanks for being on the show. Let me ask you to begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself. Okay. Uh, Well, I was born in Philadelphia and raised in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia suburbs, Um, I came to the study of history in a rather roundabout way. I uh, got my uh, bachelor's degree actually in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I later uh, got a master's degree in mathematics and worked in a number of uh, uh, different jobs over the years. Uh, Eventually, I began to systematize my study of history. I'd always loved history. 
uh, and but had studied it in a, in a fairly unorganized way. Uh, I began uh, taking graduate courses at Temple University and decided to uh, apply for the PhD program there. Uh, and I, over the ensuing years, I uh, received a PhD uh, from Temple uh, with a focus on American uh, social and economic history in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you're actually the second um, mathematician that we've had on this show. Mathematician become historian. So you're not oh, alone. That's interesting. Yeah, you're, you're, you're not alone. There are two of you. I might realize as, that. And as many of the listeners uh, to this show will know, my wife is a mathematician. They're sick of hearing that. They've told me, but I'm sorry about that, listeners. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write Condensed Capitalism. Was this your dissertation? Is that right? Or um, It came out of my dissertation. Yeah, so, it uh, revised from my dissertation. Right. So why don't you talk about the process by which you came to the topic as a dissertation and then transformed the dissertation into this wonderful book. Okay. Uh, well, uh, two of the uh, particular areas that I've been interested in in, in my study of history have been uh, the development of uh, social movements in American history, uh, for instance, during the uh, 1930s, the Depression era, uh, the 1960s, and so on. Uh, and another area that I've been interested in has been uh, the more recent history of globalization and the effects of uh, the global economic changes on, on the uh, American people. And when I was uh, looking about for a, a topic for my, my dissertation study, I read a book by Jefferson Cowie called Capital Moves, and it's this study of the RCA Corporation and how it began the process of moving production of its consumer electronics from one place to another in order to get cheaper labor, essentially, to oversimplify. And he uses this book to point out that a lot of what we think about in today's world of companies moving to Mexico or China to uh, get uh, cheap labor, that this actually had a much longer history and began uh, in, of all places, Camden, New Jersey, in his case, uh, with the RCA uh, Corporation. Uh, it moved from Camden to Bloomington, Indiana, eventually to Juarez, Mexico. I, I uh, having lived in this area, was aware of the other large Camden famous company in addition to RCA was Campbell Soup Company across the street from RCA. Uh, but it had a very different history. It did not run away. It, it uh, opened up there in 1869, and it didn't uh, implode its final, uh, its uh, plant until 1991. Uh, so for uh, about uh, 120 years or so, uh, it produced soup uh, in, in Camden. And uh, it, it somehow had to come up with ways of dealing with the same issues that RCA dealt with uh, by uh, moving uh, to other places. And so I thought that that would be a fascinating question to, to explore. So I began looking at, at Campbell's history to see how they were able to uh, continue producing uh, their, their soups at a, at a very low cost uh, over the years uh, and despite uh, efforts at unionization among uh, its employees and, and other uh, other uh, impacts on, on their uh, cost structure, uh, they were able to uh, continue producing soup uh, and uh, continue returning a very uh, generous profit to the owners uh, of the company. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, what as I got into the study of, of the company, 
I not only found a lot of information that dealt with those issues, but I found many other things that I was not expecting to find, uh, things about uh, the origins of the Puerto Rican communities in uh, Philadelphia and Camden and how they were tied to uh, Campbell Soup's uh, um, labor uh, market uh, policies uh, during World War II, um, the uh, connections to the uh, McCarthy era, the, the very first conviction under the any communist provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act were a union leader at Campbell's in Camden, and, and many other things too. So I, I was hooked by what I thought would be a somewhat interesting topic, but uh, then I, I really um, uh, found the, the story fascinating. And I, I interviewed uh, many former employees, uh, workers, union activists, uh, company managers, engineers, and uh, and that that really brought it alive to me as well. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, then, with uh, with some uh, some revision, uh, I was able to uh, um, turn that into a book mm -hmm. and, uh, that we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this: uh, Is uh, Campbell Soup still headquartered in Camden? Do they still have offices there? Uh, yes, the uh, the corporate headquarters are still in Camden. Mm -hmm. It is uh, one of the very few uh, companies that is still in Camden. Now the the factories are no longer there. They're, they're spread across the country and, and, and somewhat outside the country. But the, the corporate headquarters are still there um, because it is uh, the corporate headquarters and not the uh, uh, production facilities. Uh, unfortunately, the, the company doesn't provide uh, many jobs for residents of Camden today, mm -hmm. but it, it is a large employer in the general South Jersey and Philadelphia area. Mm -hmm. I see. I was asking because I wondered where the archives are for the Campbell Soup Company and uh, whether they were um, whether they were open about letting you in them or look at them, that kind of thing. Well, uh, the Campbell Soup does have archives uh, at its headquarters in Camden, um, and and they were uh, happy to to let me look at them. Um, though, as you might expect, a, a company that is still very much uh, still in business, uh, they w what is in their archives is uh, not unexpectedly somewhat limited. Uh, they do have a lot of material relating to marketing, uh, in which Campbell's has uh, uh, been responsible for many innovations. But uh, my focus was not especially on marketing, so I. Uh, in fact, didn't find uh, a whole lot of material that was uh, directly relevant to what I was looking at there. So mm -hmm. I, I actually did most of my research in, in other archives. I see, I see, I see. So why don't we begin the story of Campbell's Soup with, um, with I guess, canned goods. Uh, you talk a little bit about the origins of canned goods, but why don't you explain to us exactly where they come from? Okay, well... Um, the, the preservation of food has been a, a very important uh, component of the development of, of uh, global capitalism, uh, and uh, there are many things that could not have been done if, if uh, prepared foods, preserved foods uh, were not available. Uh, the actual origin of canning itself uh, came from Napoleon Bonaparte, who uh, had a, a competition for someone who could uh, develop a method of preserving food for his troops, and the winner of that competition was one Nicolas Appert, and he developed the uh, initial uh, methods of, of canning food, 
and uh, and uh, the rest is history, mm -hmm. essentially. Uh, in the United States, uh, the Civil War uh, created a uh, great demand for uh, canned foods, preserved foods, and uh, that there were many small canning companies that uh, sprung up uh, during that period, and uh, Campbell's in particular, as well as H.J. Uh, Hines, uh, were both founded in 1869. Mm -hmm. uh, Campbell's uh, was uh, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, result of a collaboration between a, a tinsmith, uh, Abraham Anderson, and a, a produce wholesaler, uh, Joseph Campbell, and they they began that company. Uh, one of uh, a large number of companies involved in canning in South Jersey. Um, South Jersey was especially suited for uh, this new industry uh, for a, a few reasons, and, and one of them, the, probably the most important, was that the South Jersey uh, agricultural uh, area produced uh, what what became known as the the, the premier tomato uh, for uh, for canning purposes, and so the, the Jersey tomato uh, became the, the real uh, basis. Uh, of the uh, canning industry and of Campbell's, well, Joseph Campbell Preserve Company, as it was originally called, uh, and uh, later Campbell Soup Company. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, in addition to the uh, close ties to the agricultural produce of the region, uh, the, the, that the location of Camden right across the river from Philadelphia, centrally located in the, in the mid-Atlantic states, was uh, also an excellent distribution point uh, for the finished product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When did uh, Campbell's? I, you know, I, I'm trying to think of other uh, canned soup brands, and the only one I can think of is Progresso. But I'm sure there are others. When did Campbell's soup become kind of the national brand in? Or let me put it differently. When did Campbell's soup become a large, a kind of quasi-national brand? Well, uh, there were many. Uh, small companies involved in the, in, uh, in canning and, and several in, in soups, but uh, soup production was a, a pretty minimal part even of the, the canning industry uh, through the 1890s. One of the problems uh, with, with canning soup was that uh, soup is mostly water, and so when you made soup, you had to... Uh, Fill cans with with the uh, ingredients that included a large amount of water. It was a uh, heavy uh, product to uh, ship. It, it was very bulky, and uh, so the the cost that had to be charged uh, for soup was more than most people were willing to spend, and so it it never be never really caught on. Mm -hmm. um, a, a few different companies began experimenting with. Uh, removing the water from soup, condensing soup, or concentrating soup. Uh, Campbell actually uh, is the company that's generally credited with inventing condensed soup, although uh, I found that uh, a number of other companies in the 1890s uh, were also producing something that they were calling concentrated soup. But in any case, um, one of the, the families that had gotten involved with uh, the uh, Campbell company uh, in the 1890s were the, the Dorrance family, which is a, a wealthy family originally from Bristol, Pennsylvania. And uh, one of the young members of the Dorrance family that, that joined the company in 1897 
uh, was a, uh, a chemist uh, who had just gotten his PhD from uh, the University of Göttingen in Germany. Uh, and when he returned to the United States, rather than uh, teaching at uh, Cornell or Bryn Mawr, where he was uh, offered positions, he decided to join his uncle at the Campbell Soup Company uh, in Camden. And uh, he opened up the, the uh, uh, laboratory there. And uh, as the legend goes, he uh, came up with the brilliant idea. Um, as uh, Fortune magazine said in 1935, the only original idea that Campbell Soup ever had. I don't know whether that's true, but um, <laughs> the uh, uh, Campbell Company began producing condensed soups uh, by uh, removing most of the water. Uh, they were able to greatly reduce the warehousing costs, the shipment costs, and so the, the selling cost of a can of soup was uh, set at a 10 cents a can, and it stayed that way for, for decades. Um, so uh, Dorrance also uh, began uh, very actively marketing his new condensed soup. Uh, he uh, used basically any techniques that were at the forefront of marketing. He was one of the first people there doing it. Uh, he uh, initially started out putting uh, placards in streetcars. He uh, quickly started advertising in, in magazines, and he had very particular ideas about how things should be advertised and the location within the magazine. He studied all this uh, very closely. Uh, he, as when radio came about, uh, later when television came about, the, the Campbell Company was always there at the forefront, uh, being the uh, sponsor of the Amos and Andy show of, uh, of Lassie and, and so on. Uh, so in, in any case, um, uh, essentially what uh, Dorrance and his company did were to uh, uh, create a new need in the mind of the American consumer that uh, uh, that if a housewife wanted to uh, feed her family uh, nutritionally and uh, and easily, uh, she could make Campbell soup a, a central part of of her menu. And uh, and from there, the uh, the numbers of, of cans of soup uh, sold uh, grew very rapidly from about 1900 uh, through the late 1920s, and uh, by the late 1920s, Campbell was uh, producing about uh, 10 million cans a day during the tomato season, a, a uh, one to two month period every summer, mm -hmm. uh, and tomato soup uh, remained the the, uh, uh, the real essence of the company, but they expanded into uh, many other uh, lines of soup as well. Mm -hmm. So, John... Dorrance, as you've mentioned, plays a central role in the story of Campbell's Soup and the people who work there, and I suppose all of American culture. Um, could you talk a little bit about his role? He was quite the rationalizer, I think we would say. Yeah, very much so. Uh, as I mentioned a little bit about his attention to uh, even what page in a, in a magazine the Campbell's advertisements would be on. Well, that was at the, the end point, at the marketing and distribution point. Uh, but his, his interest in uh, being a rationalizer and then being uh, a, a real uh, micromanager uh, go went all the way back to the beginning of the production of soup, and that is uh, in uh, growing the, the tomato plants and the other plants that would be used to grow the ingredients that went into the soup. Uh, the Campbell Company... Uh, began providing seeds and small plants to farmers that it contracted with. Uh, its contracts were extremely sp specific and uh, what the farmers must do to grow the, the tomatoes and, and, and other uh, produce, the, how much 
and which types of fertilizer and insecticide to use. These farms were visited by uh, Campbell inspectors to make sure they were following uh, the letter of the law and, and uh, following through on their agreements, uh, and they were required to sell all of their produce to the Campbell Company. Um, but most of all, and, and really the, the primary subject of my book, uh, was in the production of soup itself that uh, that John T. Dorrance uh, put most of his effort in um, deciding uh, how every person in the plant, uh, up to uh, five or six thousand people at, at its in its heyday, uh, year round, in addition to uh, about double that number in the summer during the tomato season, uh, he had uh, his. Uh, uh, managers developed various uh, uh, procedures that were collected in a procedures book and every single uh, job in the plant was uh, what the responsibilities of the, the employees that, that carried out those operations they were detailed down to the minute. Uh, John Dorrance was a, an early advocate of, uh, of scientific management. Uh, you know, Frederick Taylor had uh, pioneered uh, scientific management across the river in Philadelphia. Um, uh, Dorrance didn't adopt uh, a, uh, a uh, method of, uh, of scientific management that was close to Teller's original ideas, but instead uh, he uh, went with uh, an, an alternative that promised a much quicker return, and this was uh, known as the Bedeau system. Uh, and uh, the uh, Bedeau was was someone who uh, who was really more of a, of a salesman. He was called a charlatan by some critics, and he took some of the uh, essential ideas of Taylor in scientific management, and he would uh, knock on the doors of CEOs in the teens and twenties, uh, promising him promising them that uh, they would see a, a rapid return. A very uh, quick return on their investment, and that their their uh, plants would become much more efficient. And uh, Dorrance uh, allowed Bedeau to Charles Bedeau to, to come in and uh, uh, do a test run in, in some departments, and uh, and Dorrance uh, was convinced that uh, this would help him uh, continue to uh, make his soup and, and other products uh, in. More efficient manner, and uh, it really fit in with his ideas. His, his procedures book already existed, and uh, a lot of what Bedeau had companies do, Dorrance had really already done. So this allowed him to come up with uh, even uh, further levels of detail uh, in, in uh, assigning to each job what he called a B rating, uh, the letter B after Bedeau, and uh, the B ratings that employees would be required to produce 60 bees per hour if they wanted to uh, continue to hold their job. And if they produced in excess of 60 bees per hour, then they were given a, a bonus uh, in, in some proportion to the uh, excess above uh, 60. Uh, and uh, uh, Dorrance, uh, these are just a couple of the examples of the ways that he uh, really looked at every, how everything in the production of soup could be done uh, more and more efficiently. He uh, was a, a great advocate of automation. The, the production of soup uh, allowed automation in some areas, and, and he uh, aggressively pursued 
those kinds of uh, efforts at automation. But many other areas were very difficult to automate, uh, things such as uh, eviscerating chickens uh, at uh, in the preparation of of things like uh, potatoes. The, uh, there were potatoes that had uh, not only to be skinned, but uh, you know, some of them had more uh, blemishes in them than others that had to be cut out. Uh, there were uh, so many areas that uh, that prevented automation that what uh, his plants uh, turned out to be was uh, an amalgam of uh, some highly automated parts and other parts in which uh, the uh, human workers were integrated into the the great machine uh, that uh, that was uh, uh, the Campbell uh, the soup. Mm-hmm. I'm, gl- I'm glad I'm glad to hear that metaphor because for anyone who's ever made something like. Um, chicken noodle soup, that is from scratch, or tomato soup. It's hard to imagine how you could automate it. How exactly was chicken noodle soup or uh, tomato soup made? How did he make a factory, a system of discrete procedures that uh, started with, let's say, tomatoes and ended up with that stuff in a can with a label on it? Okay. Well, uh, the the uh, structure of the plant in Camden and the, uh, the one other, the, the second uh, location for Campbell was in uh, Chicago uh, in 1929. A plant was built there, and, and the structure of both of these plants was was very similar. They were uh, six-story plants. The the uh, design uh, involved the the uh, movement of uh, the ingredients to the top floor. Uh, there, uh, in my book, there's a picture of a, a <laughs> conveyor belt that's carrying tomatoes to the top floor of the plant. Um, at the top plant, I mean, at the, on the top floor, uh, you had the uh, people that worked in preparation, and preparation involved inspection, uh, and involved uh, whatever other processes need to be done to, as I mentioned, uh, say, uh, paring uh, potatoes or uh, cutting onions or uh, you know the various kinds of things like like that, and that was generally done uh, on the top floor by uh, primarily women who were. Uh, involved in food preparation, uh, the uh, uh, a lot of the employment makeup of the soup companies uh, um, were uh, took a lot of the the concepts about the the proper role of uh, women, what women could do, and women were it was assumed that they uh, could uh, almost naturally do things like food preparation because that's one of the things that they were doing in their homes. And so the food preparation tests were, were uh, overwhelmingly uh, given to women, uh, and uh, they they worked at various tables on the top floor uh, doing the various uh, initial preparation tests. Um, then uh, the next step, what happened is uh, gravity was essentially used to, uh, as each stage in the production process was completed, um, gravity was used to uh, bring that stage of the product down to the next floor, and the, uh, the essentially the overall the the various processes can be considered to be in, in one of three stages. In the first being preparation, the second being blending, and then the third being uh, the final processing uh, and cooking and canning. And uh, so the uh, the blending was done on the middle floor, in which uh, for a long time uh, men with uh, large oars. Uh, stirred the soup in, in large cauldrons uh, until the the right blend was was gotten. Uh, different 
the different ingredients and seasonings were added uh, at this uh, intermediate stage. And then the final stage uh, on the lower floors uh, involved the, uh, the uh, placement of the soup in cans, uh, the sealing of the cans, and then the, the cans being moved to uh, large cookers or retorts, as they called them, uh, in which the, the soup, soup, filled soup cans were raised to a certain temperature for a certain amount of time. Uh, to cook them, then uh, when they came uh, off of uh, out of the retorts, then they uh, went uh, through labeling machines and, and workers running labeling machines with labels on them. And then the, uh, finally, on the ground floor, the uh, uh, the cans were uh, were put into cases and, and loaded onto uh, trucks and, and railroad cars for for shipment around the country. I, I think at one point in the book, you uh, described the entire thing as a giant grist mill. So the ingredients go in the top, and the stuff exactly. comes out the bottom. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that's a good uh, that's a good shorthand description. Yeah, that's a really that's a brilliant metaphor, I'd, and I'd never really realized it was done like that. But that's exactly what it is. So, um, uh, after the uh, company reached its 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 full and modern size, um, d- describe who worked there and what the working conditions were like. Well, uh, Campbell's uh, because. Uh, of Darnes's commitment to keeping uh, soup uh, available at a low price, as I mentioned, uh, 10 cents a can for a long time. Uh, th- there were increases in costs uh, for ingredients, uh, for shipping uh, in other areas. And so uh, he had to uh, cut the costs wherever he could. And, and so in the, the production process, uh, this is where he did this, whether by automation uh, or by employing a workforce that, that would uh, accept uh, fairly low pay. And so until the uh, 1930s in particular, um, Campbell's was uh, known as a, uh, a company that, that did not pay a lot of money. And so a lot of the people that worked there were not uh, many of the the working class people that lived in the Camden or Philadelphia areas for a long time were more uh, recent immigrants. Uh, and in particular, in the early years, there were many uh, Italian immigrants and children of Italian immigrants that filled most of the production jobs uh, throughout the throughout the company, from the uh, the women that worked in preparation through the men that worked in the uh, blending and uh, men and women that worked in the final uh, processing steps. Uh, the, the company also uh, hired uh, some African-American men uh, to do certain laboring jobs as well as jobs such as janitors and so on. Um, blacks uh, uh, had very limited opportunities uh, until the 1940s uh, in Campbell. Uh, no black women were hired and only black men were for a very uh, uh, limited range of, uh, of uh, job options. Um, Throughout the years, uh, Campbell changed the particular uh, the particular source of uh, its employees as uh, things changed, the demographics changed in the area. Uh, in, uh, in during World War II, there Campbell faced a real problem because uh, while it still uh, felt this need to uh, pay its workers at uh, at fairly uh, minimal. Uh, levels, uh, the, there was a, a real labor shortage during World War II. Not only were people going to the front, uh, they were also going into uh, 
uh, filling other factories where they were paid better, uh, and uh, as well, uh, Campbell's uh, demands uh, for food production during the war uh, increased tremendously. So at that point, uh, Campbell uh, searched uh, around for other areas of, uh, of potential labor, and uh, it uh, partnered with the, the War Manpower Commission of the U.S. government to uh, to bring in uh, many uh, uh, migrant workers from uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, it uh, contracted with uh, with workers in uh, in Florida that worked uh, in citrus much of the year. Uh, African American workers uh, that brought them up uh, for the uh, for the peak season in the summer. Uh, it brought um, uh, workers in from uh, the the Caribbean, the English speaking Caribbean, and, and other areas. And uh, as uh, the end of the war approached, it even began uh, considering uh, the use of uh, German prisoners of war, although it uh, it did not actually uh, use prisoners of war. Um, so, um, so over the years, the uh, uh, the, the uh, source of the of the uh, people that came to work at at Campbell's has changed, but it always um, was a were, were groups that were. Uh, generally not uh, at, at the center of uh, or, or groups that, that uh, did not have a long experience with with uh, working uh, in, in factories in industrial areas, but were generally uh, the newcomers. And, and many different groups used their experience at Campbell's as an entry into the industrial workforce. Mm-hmm. And many uh, did move on to, uh, to working in, in other places in later years. Mm-hmm. I see. So one of the things that uh, stood out for me in the book was the explicit use of differential treatment and pay for different um, classes of workers. This was company policy for decades. Can you describe that? Yes. Uh, yeah. The, the company uh, really uh, invested heavily in, in the segmentation of its workforce uh, along many different uh, categories. Uh, the the men and men and women were of course uh, one of the the ways that it uh, differentiated women were paid uh, far less than men uh, e- even in cases where they did uh, the exact same work in, in most cases women did different work than men did but there were a few job definitions in which both men and women worked but women uh, were paid significantly less than that uh, even among men uh, Campbell differentiated between men and what are called boys uh, boys were male workers up to the age of 21, who often or usually did uh, again the the same work that uh, men over the age of 21 did, but they were classified as boys and paid uh, usually a couple cents above per hour above what women were working, but far less than the average pay uh, for men. Um, the uh, one other large area of uh, differentiation segmentation within the workforce was between permanent and temporary workers. Uh, as I said, as at its peak, uh, Campbell employed about 5,000 people year-round, but about 10,000 during tomato season. Those uh, additional 5,000 temporary workers uh, were uh, marked as, as different and, and really inferior. Uh, they, they, their employee ID badges had a large black T on them so they could be easily identified. And they were also paid less. Uh, again, if they were doing the, the same job as other permanent employees, uh, they still were paid at, uh, at less uh, uh, as uh, temporaries. Um, so 
so uh, this kind of segmentation eventually began to, to fall by the wayside uh, by the uh, 1950s and 1960s, especially under the pressure of, of their union uh, and, uh, and by the 1960s by civil rights laws. But by that point, the, the company began to switch towards segmentation instead by uh, geographical region. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the early years, Campbell uh, was only in Camden for a long time, and then, uh, and then in Chicago too. Uh, but by the the, the 60s, uh, it had opened up additional plants in Sacramento, California, and Napoleon, Ohio, and Paris, Texas, and uh, the the company began playing one uh, uh, one region off one, one plant off against another, so that if um, during uh, contract negotiation time uh, one of the plants went on strike, uh, the company would uh, simply ramp up production at another uh, plant in another location and and wait out the, the strike until the, the workers went back essentially for what the company had initially offered. So th- this kind of segmentation uh, shifted in an interesting way from uh, uh, one being primarily along uh, gender and racial and ethnic lines to uh, and age lines. Uh, to one based more on, on regional location, and uh, so, but it's been a, a it had been a, a long-standing uh, part of, of working at Campbell for uh, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned unions because unions play a very important part in your book and in the story of Campbell Soup. Um, so, alongside the principle of segmentation, another principle of uh, of Darnes and the um, Campbell management. Uh, was a kind of ferocious anti-unionism. Um, I want to ask about the origins of that and also how eventually the union made its way into uh, the Campbell Souk factory in Camden. Okay, well, uh, as you might expect, someone with, uh, a, with the extraordinary attention to a control that John P. Dorrance had uh, was certainly not prepared to share uh, the control of the plant with any other person or organization, and the, the thought that there would be a union that, that he and his management would need to negotiate with uh, in deciding things like working rules and, and even pay uh, was something that was uh, really a, a anathema to, uh, to his whole philosophy of, of running a business. And uh, through the 19, uh, well, through uh, the early 1930s. Uh, there, there had been no uh, real uh, unionization at all of, of any of the employees uh, at Campbell Soup, and, and in fact, in Camden as a whole, uh, there there were many uh, large industrial uh, plants in Camden by the 1930s, but uh, virtually none of them were unionized. There, there were uh, some smaller craft unions that had existed since the 19th century. And, and very for various small uh, crafts such as you know plumbers and and so on, but um, but the uh, the RCA's New York Ship, um, uh, Campbell Soup and, and, and other companies uh, had no the, the, these were companies that uh, were uh, operating on a, on a new the newer large industrial model that, that characterized the Fordist period of uh, American industrial capitalism. And uh, until the 1930s, they, there were no unions. Uh, by uh, 1933 and 1934, uh, most of these companies, uh, the, the employees at these companies, began 
to uh, try to change the, the uh, conditions of, of their work. Uh, and this is part of the much larger story of the uh, CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, that, that grew up in the 1930s. And uh, Camden really became a, a real hotbed of, of CIO organization. Uh, all the companies that I mentioned uh, became uh, the locations of uh, very active and, and radical uh, locals of uh, a number of unions that were affiliated with the CIO. Uh, in the case of Campbell's, uh, initially in, in 1934, uh, there was a, a very spontaneous uh, rank-and-file uh, uprising almost that uh, the people were fed up and 2,000 people essentially walked out and, uh, and tried to uh, get the company to recognize the union. Uh, the, the company... Uh, essentially refused to to deal with uh, the with the union as I said that Dorrance was uh, not at all willing to uh, concede anything to to sharing control and, uh, and that early effort uh, was defeated um, by the late 1930s uh, a uh, a more experienced uh, uh, and uh, uh, a more uh, radical committed group of activists within the uh, soup plant uh, began another organizing drive. Uh, and, and this was essentially, the drive was essentially led by two groups within Campbell's. Uh, one was a was the men of the maintenance group. The uh, maintenance group were the mechanics that uh, fixed machines when they broke and, and constructed uh, new machines and so on. Uh, and, and they were uh, men who held uh, some skills that Campbell could not do without, and so uh, they felt that they should be getting paid much better than they were, and they had the skills that, that uh, Campbell was really dependent on and and could not easily fire because they couldn't just hire anyone off the street to fill those jobs. So that was one group that was uh, uh, strongly behind the, the immunization campaign. Another group were uh, leftist uh, activists who uh, many of whom had participated as, as very young people in the 1934 abortive strike. Uh, one of them was uh, John Tiza, who was a high school student. His mother uh, was an Italian immigrant who worked uh, at Campbell's all her life on the uh, chicken preparation line. And uh, John Tiza worked there at the peak season in the summer but when he was in high school. Uh, he had participated in the 1934 strike um, but uh, and became radicalized through his participation in that and uh, he he began he became known as the the class socialist in Camden High School, uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he uh, uh, later went to a an AFL uh, American Federation of Labor convention uh, where he heard about the the battle in Spain against the fascists, and and uh, after hearing this and being inspired by the the stories he heard. He rushed off to, to join the uh, Abraham Lincoln Brigade as an American volunteer in the, in the fight against fascism in the late 1930s. So uh, off he went to uh, Spain, and, uh, and in fact, uh, after the defeat uh, of the loyalist cause in Spain, uh, he, he was actually the, the last American to leave alive uh, from Spain. Really? Uh, mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, uh, he uh, uh, came back to Camden, and, and by this time, uh, he had joined the Communist Party, and uh, um, from being a, a somewhat 
more amorphous kind of uh, socialist or radical in his high school days. He, he was now a committed communist. Um, his mother still worked at the plant. He had many other friends like Tony Valentino, who was working at the plant uh, this whole time, uh, who was also uh, uh, quickly moved left and, and joined the Communist Party. There were uh, many others who were active in the Socialist Party and, and some independent radicals and, and so on. So you had the, the first group of maintenance workers, the second group of uh, people from the neighborhood who had become radicalized, and between the two of them, they uh, uh, built a movement that uh, that eventually attracted the support of the overwhelming majority of uh, of Campbell employees. And, and one of the other advantages they had uh, by 1939-1940 compared to the 1934 strike was that the labor laws in the U.S. were much stronger by then. Uh, in 1935, the Wagner Act. Uh, made it much easier for uh, unions once they uh, won an election showing that the majority of uh, the employees wanted to affiliate with the union. That made it uh, much easier for a union to gain recognition in that way than it was before 1935. So uh, using the Wagner Act and, and using this movement that was built up over a number of years, uh, they uh, created a, uh, what became known as Local Lady, and which had a uh, a, a long uh, and very interesting career at Campbell's. Um, the uh, local lady was associated initially with the United Cannery Workers, uh, which uh, was probably the most diverse union uh, in the United States. It was a, a fascinating union that, that organized uh, many downtrodden groups that, that other unions just didn't bother organizing. It organized uh, tobacco workers in the South, black and white uh, tobacco workers that organized oyster shuckers, cemetery diggers, uh, <laughs> all, all these uh, groups uh, that, that uh, were not considered uh, any central part of the, of the uh, economy, but uh, the, the United Cannery Workers, or UCAPOA, as their long official name uh, uh, abbreviates to, uh, UCAPOA uh, um, was uh, what the uh, Historian Vicky Ruiz uh, called, uh, she called it a women's union because of the, the uh, high level of activity, participation, in, and leadership in, by many women. And it, it was uh, diverse and, and, uh, in all sorts of ways uh, in organizing uh, many people across the country. UCAPOA mm -hmm. um, changed its name to the Food and Tobacco Workers in the 1940s because it, it, had, it was. Uh, it did include a large number of tobacco workers in addition to cannery workers and other workers. Um, but by the, uh, the late 1940s, uh, the uh, beginnings of uh, McCarthyism and uh, a lot of uh, anti-communist hysteria uh, in, in various segments of American society uh, also hit the, the union movement. And within the CIO, there was essentially a split between the uh, the left-led unions and the uh, and the, uh, several other unions that were opposed to um, the leftist leadership of those unions, and uh, about uh, 10 or 12 unions either left or were expelled from the CIO uh, in 1950, and one of those was the food and tobacco workers. Mm. Um, local 80, uh, what happened with uh, many of the, the locals that were, were part of the food and tobacco workers at that time, they essentially went out of business uh, and uh, did not exist uh, after that point. Uh, local lady in Camden, um, at that point, 
disaffiliated from the, the remnants of the food and tobacco workers, stayed independent for a year, and then uh, reaffiliated with uh, probably the, the one uh, most progressive left-leaning union that was still in uh, the CIO, and that was the United Packing House Workers uh, that had organized many of the, the Chicago and Midwestern uh, slaughterhouses and, and packing houses. Uh, and uh, and so from uh, 1951 through 1968, uh, Local 80 was affiliated with the packing house workers. Um, by 1968, the packing house workers itself, because of changes in the meatpacking industry, uh, had shrunk and then uh, became part of the amalgamated meat cutters. So Local 80 then became an amalgamated meat cutters local. And then uh, in the next decade, um, the uh, amalgamated meat cutters itself uh, merged into the food and tobacco workers. So, so local lady uh, was always the the local at Camden, but over the years, from uh, 19 uh, from 1940 through uh, 1990, uh, when the plant closed, uh, it, uh, it went through uh, several uh, changes in in the uh, national union that it was affiliated with. Mm-hmm. I see. I, I'm going to ask what I, I think will probably sound like to many people a silly question, but did did um, Campbell's, did the management ever see the light on unions? Did they ever find a, a way to really effectively deal with them other than try to break them? Uh, well, for most of the uh, history of Local 80, the management had a pretty antagonistic attitude towards, towards the union and uh, used a number of different uh, strategies over the years to to try to uh, defeat uh, the the unions and the support that they had among the employees. Um, by the the 1970s, as I mentioned, when uh, the packing house workers went out of business and merged into the amalgamated meat cutters, that that union was a lot more conservative. It, it had been an old uh, craft-based union, one of the old AFL unions going back to the 19th century, and in its history, uh, while it had a record of a, a few uh, militant strikes. For the most part, it had a, uh, a much more conciliatory relationship with management than some of these other unions that I mentioned. So uh, by the 1970s and, and with the uh, driving out from local aid of, of some of the uh, the most radical uh, leadership uh, during the McCarthy era, uh, the uh, remaining Local AD leaders, and, and especially the, the national union that it was affiliated with, uh, be, on the union side became uh, more conciliatory towards Campbell's. And so by the 1970s, Campbell, in return, uh, did uh, really change its policy towards unions. It, it decided to uh, accept what it, would, what it considered a responsible union uh, and, uh, and agreed uh, during the, the remaining decade or so of its existence in Camden to um, give uh, you know fairly decent raises uh, to uh, the employees at contract time, but in return it expected the union to not try to tell it how to run its business it, uh, and, and things like the introduction of automation that led to uh, the uh, loss of many jobs. Uh, the union was to have no say in that. It was just to go along with what uh, company decisions made. So it was a sort of a, a bargain that uh, in the early years, the, the two fought each other, uh, you might consider more or less as equals, that they both had uh, strong bases of power. Um, by the 1970s, when the, the union had been weakened and the company was in a stronger position, 
it, it essentially imposed its conditions, and the union accepted that. And then the uh, the uh, company was able to uh, uh, deal in, in a way, uh, you know, in a different way with unions that that allowed the uh, um, you know, labor peace to to exist for. Uh, they said the last decade or so uh, of its existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is one of the great, I don't know if the right word is irony or not, but at the moment at which management um, comes to see the unions in a kind of favorable light and wor- work with them, uh, just 10 years later, uh, the game is pretty much up. And Campbell's leaves Camden, at least leaves the production facilities. How, how, why did that happen? Well, the uh, w- one of the, the things that I've been... Uh, Looking at since the book is uh, uh, an interesting thing that that, uh, that I noticed throughout the, the course of Campbell's history, and that was a, the interesting connection of, uh, of food processing companies in general, and including Campbell's, uh, the, the relationship of these companies to uh, the rhythms and the restraints of nature. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, uh, South Jersey had been considered the, the uh, best place to produce tomatoes for canning. So um, since the tomatoes had to be processed uh, immediately uh, upon harvesting, the uh, soup plants and canning plants had to be located right right in their midst or right directly adjacent to, to those locations. Uh, and so for a long time, Campbell was really tied to uh, its location in South Jersey uh, by its dependence on its uh, on its raw materials, its most essential raw material, as well as the other agricultural uh, inputs. Now, by the 1960s and 1970s, there was a, uh, a major change in, in, uh, in how uh, tomatoes were harvested in particular. Now, the harvesting of the tomatoes was, uh, was a very large part of the cost. And, uh, and through uh, government aid at the University of California, uh, the uh, tomato harvester was developed that uh, that would was a machine that would uh, go through tomato fields and harvest all the tomatoes at once. Uh, but th- this had certain requirements of its own that uh, you had to have an, an area that had very dependable weather, uh, predictable weather. Uh, it had to have very large areas. It had to have a type of tomato that could withstand uh, being harvested by a machine, as well as tomatoes that that all ripened at the same time, because this machine would just make a single pass, as opposed to the old hand-pick methods, in which uh, farm workers would go through the fields multiple times to pick the uh, the ripe tomatoes by hand. Uh, so, uh, by the time of the, the by the early 1970s and the development of the tomato harvester in California, uh, it, it finally became possible for uh, companies that that were using tomatoes as an input to locate their final processing plants wherever they wanted, and they only needed to locate um, the initial uh, stage in which uh, tomatoes were turned into tomato paste, uh, and then the tomato paste was used as input for everything else. Mm-hmm. So um, by the 1970s, in fact, by 1979, uh, Campbell announced that it was no longer they're going to use the the famous Jersey tomato. Now, uh, being from this area, uh, I can tell you that that came as quite a bit of a shock uh, to people that the Campbell would not be using the Jersey tomato, which uh, everyone around here is uh, uh, very proud of and, and can't imagine that the tomatoes anywhere else could taste anywhere near as, as good. But 
uh, Campbell, uh, by that point, was trucking in um, large volumes of tomato paste that were uh, stored in drums or, or large boxes uh, uh, from California, actually. So uh, by the, the 1970s and 1980s, the production of processing tomatoes as opposed to fresh tomatoes, the processing tomatoes were almost 100% uh, now being produced in California, turned into paste at, at very special tomato paste processing plants, uh, and then shipped from there to places like Camden or places like Napoleon, Ohio, which was another plant which had been located there because it was in the middle of the Ohio uh, tomato growing region. But uh, by this point, um, that the necessity, that restraint of nature was broken, and not only did that affect where the locational plants could be, it also broke down the old dependence of companies like Campbell on having a large seasonal workforce during the tomato season. Uh, no longer did it have to scurry to find uh, an additional 5,000 workers uh, in, in August and September uh, during uh, the tomato season, but now because it was using paste, uh, it could uh, spread the production of tomato soup and other products uh, throughout the year. So uh, it was essentially this overcoming the, the restraints of nature uh, by the 1970s that allowed Campbell to no longer uh, uh, be tied to South Jersey. Um, and it, uh, 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 by that point, uh, had begun building some, some really ultra-modern plants that built uh, what really was the... Uh, the final death knell for Camden it, it, when it when uh, the company brought online a, an ultra modern plant in in Maxton uh, in uh, North Carolina, and uh, th this plant was built on a very different model than the original gristmill structure of the uh, Camden and Chicago plants. The the Maxton plant uh, actually turned out to be far more efficient and is much more similar to virtually all industrial plants that are built today. And in this plant, it, all the processing is done on one floor. Uh, the raw ingredients are brought in on one side of the, the plant, and then the, uh, the different stages proceed across the, the floor until you get to the other end mm -hmm. when the final product goes out the other door. Mm -hmm. um, what had happened over the years is, especially as a lot of these old buildings in Camden and Chicago uh, became old and a bit decrepit, and a lot of the uh, elevators and other uh, mechanisms for moving things around the plants broke down. Uh, that that turned out to become a great inefficiency. And so what had been seen as a, a very modern and uh, enlightened uh, manner of uh, designing a factory uh, turned out uh, after a century to be uh, not not such a great design, especially uh, when the buildings themselves were were so old. Mm -hmm. So uh, by the 1980s, um, uh, Campbell's did not need to be tied to, uh, to this location, um, and it had uh, built newer plants elsewhere, in particular, and in particular this new plant in Maxton. And so uh, in 1989, the company announced that it was would be closing Camden the following year, and, uh, and then in 19 91 that uh, had a, a an implosion uh, that uh, that demolished the uh, the entire uh, factory mm -hmm. in three or four seconds. So. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you um, before we go. We've taken up a lot of your time. Two very quick questions, and I I, I really want to hear the answers to these. Though uh, the first is uh, how is Campbell's doing today, and the second is how is Camden doing today? 
Well, uh, one is doing very well and one is doing very poorly. and then you might guess uh, mm-hmm. which is which. Uh, Campbell Soup is doing very well. The, the Darns family has uh, continued to uh, benefit from the wealth created uh, by the great-grandfather, uh, the patriarch of the family. Um, the uh, recent list of uh, billionaires that just came out from from Forbes magazine includes a number of descendants of uh, Darrance, mm-hmm. uh, and the company itself is doing well. It's, it's had its uh, ups and downs, and uh, its stock price will vary depending on which day you look at it, but, but overall, um, it, is, uh, it is, doing, is doing well. Uh, the city of Camden, uh, unfortunately, uh, it, you know, as I mentioned earlier, RCA had moved out uh, most of its uh, um, production facilities uh, a long time ago, uh, and the many other industries that had been that had made Camden the most industrialized city in New Jersey uh, had left over the years, and, and Campbell was really the last one. That was the the, the final nail in the coffin uh, when when Campbell did move out uh, and, uh, and uh, remove those last uh, thousand production jobs. There were uh, really just about no place to work uh, in Camden for Camden's mm-hmm. residents. Mm-hmm. There are uh, a few. Uh, a few bright spots, but uh, um, uh, the the remaining employers, uh, things such as uh, Rutgers University in Camden, uh, Cooper Hospital, uh, the Campbell uh, corporate headquarters, uh, most of them em- employ uh, suburbanites, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and in the case of the, the first two, they're, they also are uh, nonprofits, so they uh, they don't contribute to the tax base. And uh, so the uh, you know Camden uh, has uh, d- despite some valiant efforts by various groups of residents to to try to uh, regain control and and change the direction of the city uh, the uh, uh, results so far have, have not been uh, uh, very bright well i I hope the things uh turn up for Camden. Uh, I want to thank you for writing the book and for spending the um the time to talk with us about it today. It's a fascinating book. We've been talking to Dan Sidorik about his book, Condensed Capitalism, Campbell Soup and the Pursuit of Cheap Production in the 20th Century. Dan, I'm going to close the interview with our traditional final question, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Well, uh, after the book, as I mentioned, uh, the topic of uh, the connection of food processing industries to the the rhythms and restraints of nature uh, or something that I uh, did look at and I, I Presented a couple papers on. Uh, now I'm in the early exploratory stages of a, a couple other uh, new areas, but uh, I'm not ready. Uh, I'm not at the point where I can really say anything intelligent about those. So I'll, I'll leave it at that right now. <laughs> That's refreshing, actually. <laughs> Usually people have sort of a full blown plan. I have about a thousand of them, and none of them right. ever well, really. Uh, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I was committed to one of these, I would uh, do that. But, uh, yeah, no, but I, I, really, like I say. Don't say a thing. I, again, I find I give you kudos for that. Yeah, that restraint. But anyway, Dan, thanks very much for talking to us today. Well, thanks very much, Marshall. I enjoyed talking to you. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Dan Sidorik about his book, Condensed Capitalism, Campbell Soup, and the Pursuit of Cheap Production in the 20th Century. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>